at the back of our brain, right here near the, the brainstem, there is a, a part of the brain that's called the amygdala. Uh, some people refer to it as the lizard brain because it functions, well, more or less the same way a lizard's brain functions. As you know, I used to live in South Florida. There's lizards all over Florida, but in South Florida, there are a lot of lizards. We have little tiny ones that aren't any bigger than a pinky, and then we have huge iguanas that go, grow many feet long. But they all do the same thing. I noticed any time I would step out of my door, a, a gaggle of lizards would go scurrying away. Now, gaggle isn't the right word. A gaggle is a group of geese. A, a group of lizards is a lounge, so a lounge of lizards would scatter, but that has nothing to do with this message, so just forget about all of that. The point is, when I approached, whether I intended a lizard harm or not, I didn't, they would scurry, they would flee because they perceived that I was a threat, that they were in danger. You see, that's what a lizard brain does. It perceives threat and danger and reacts. In fact, a lizard's brain only really serves three basic functions. One, find food. Two, reproduce. Three, run from danger. Hide, escape. Well, the reason scientists call the amygdala and the human brain a lizard brain is because it functions the same way. It's the part of the brain that serves three basic survival functions. Find food, reprodu reproduce, hide, scurry, flee from perceived danger. It, it's, it's the survival part of the brain. It's, they say the oldest part of the brain. It's the part of the brain that triggers, which you probably learned in psychology class, as the fight or flight response. Now, we often think of fight or flight in response to physical danger. There's a, there's a lion, there's a tiger, there's a, an oncoming car. I'm, I'm physically in danger. But the amygdala also reacts to other perceived threats. Maybe you're worried your boss is gonna get mad. Maybe you're anticipating a fight with your spouse or, or your kids. Uh, maybe you just saw something on the news that's created a reaction in you. Maybe you reacted to a post on social media. Maybe there's a, a car uh, trying to get into your lane on the highway. Maybe someone has done something to irritate you while you're waiting in the line at the grocery store. It, it's all the same. It perceives a threat and reacts to it. Now, unlike lizards, we don't just have a little amygdala in the back of our brains. Lizards have very small brains. We have this huge part of our brain up here in the front that, that allows us to process and to analyze and to think, are we really in danger? Is there really a problem here? Is something really wrong? But the problem is our amygdala is the first to react. And oftentimes it's the amygdala that overreacts. The lizard brain overreacts, perceiving far greater threat than is actually present. 
Just think about some of the recent events and the way we've seen reactions. Uh, it wasn't long ago that there was a lot of talk about the Me Too movement and the realization that, that many women and some men have been in danger in the workplace because of, of uh, sexual predators in power. That, that was a real threat. Makes us wonder, are we in danger all the time? We just went through a, a number of protests here in our community and around the, the world, really, around Black Lives Matter. We became more aware of the threat that people of color uh, feel when they're approached by uh, law enforcement. Oftentimes, that's been a, a real danger. Or I don't know if you've noticed any of the political ads lately. They're, they're playing on our fears, uh, focusing on crime focusing on, on immigration, focusing on the cry to, to defund the police and what would happen. It's tapping into our fears. Or even just COVID-19. Obviously, we're all afraid of getting sick, but now there's this debate about whether or not someone should have to wear a face mask. And so now we go in public, and, and I'm afraid of you because you're not wearing a mask, and maybe you're at risk to me. Increasingly, you see how this compounds. Real threats, real dangers, real stories compound and grow, and we become afraid of everything and everyone. Now, fear and distrust among humans isn't new. All through history, there's been reasons that one tribe would be fearful of another tribe. There have always been enemies, no matter who you are. There have always been barbarians, marauders, attacking the gates. We've taught our children about stranger danger. Just turn on the evening news any night, and you'll see lots of reasons of reports of crime, reports of murder, reports of, of, of terrible things happening in the world, all evoking fear, all evoking a response of our lizard brain that tells us, Either we need to fight or flee. We, we need to react to the things that make us afraid. How many people have taken self-defense classes? How many of us live in gated communities? How many of us have invested in, in home security systems? How many have concealed carry permits allowing you to carry a firearm? How many of us choose to live in low-crime neighborhoods, and we know how to avoid, where to avoid high-crime neighborhoods. How many of us have chosen to send our kids to good schools, which really means safe schools? How many of us are carrying mace in our purses? Now, don't get me wrong. There are dangerous people in the world. There are people in the world who wish to do us harm. We all need to be wise. We all need to take precautions. There are legitimate reasons to be afraid at times. There are legitimate reasons to fear certain people. But what the amygdala does, what happens in many of us, is that legitimate fear, legitimate concern, legitimate issues of safety grow exponentially, become generalized. So rather than being afraid of one dangerous person, we become afraid of 
all persons. Rather than being legitimately concerned about one particular situation, we become fearful of many situations. Let me give you an example. When I was in elementary school, I bought the the lunch every day in the school cafeteria, and we were given little cartons of milk. And back then, every carton of milk had the picture of a missing child on it. It gave the impression that there were many, many missing children in our country and that all children were at risk. Imagine that. Every day, a child is handed a milk carton with a picture of a child, and it, it, at some level, carried the message, this could be you. Now, what none of us realized were that we were seeing the same faces over and over. It was a relatively small number of children. What we also didn't realize is that most of those children had been abducted by their own parents. In the 1970s, divorce rates were growing, and so oftentimes children have been abducted during a custody dispute, not by some stranger. But it gave the impression to an entire generation that children are being abducted on the streets. It wasn't true. Or here's another one. How many of us have heard the stories about uh, about wicked people on Halloween sticking needles into Halloween candy or poisoning Halloween candy or, or sticking a razor blade into an apple? All that is based on a single incident, a crazed person trying to get back at someone. But we've heard that story over and over that we've become convinced that there are lots of people trying to harm our children on Halloween. You can even, in many places, take your bag of candy to the local ER and have it x-rayed. And they've never, there's no reports of anyone ever finding a needle or a razor blade. But we've all heard that story. You know why children get sick on Halloween and parents worry they've been poisoned? because they've eaten too much candy. You know the number one risk to a child on Halloween? Running in front of a car because they're hopped up on sugar trying to get to the next house and they're not supervised. But we've created these mythologies of danger that there are scary people out there. There are people behind every door who wish to do me, my family, my child, danger. Now, now please don't misunderstand. I'm not suggesting we should ever put our children in danger. We, of course, want to protect our children. We, of course, want to protect our loved ones. My point is that sometimes these myths about fears, about, about dangerous people, grow out of proportion. And so what's the result? We create these safe little bubbles We surround ourselves with people who we can trust or think we can trust, people that we don't think would do us harm, people that look like us, often think like us, often vote like us, live in our neighborhood, go to church with us. This this safe little bubble and everybody outside of the bubble, well, you're a potential danger. Uh, Writing about this tendency, John Pavlovitz writes, Uniformity, see that's what happens. We, we develop a uniformity of our bubble around us. Uniformity usually breeds an inherited affinity for the familiar and a fear 
of what isn't. Desmond Tutu and his daughter and foe wrote a book on forgiveness that I've recommended this summer. And they, they reflect on, on oftentimes the animosity between people, the, the hurt, the, the anger, the, the lack of forgiveness, the fears, the suspicions. And so they say, when, when we're uncaring, when we lack compassion, when we're unforgiving, we will always pay the price for it. Is it not, however, we alone who suffer? Our whole community suffers, and ultimately our whole world suffers. We are made to exist in a delicate network of interdependence. We are sisters and brothers, whether we like it or not. To treat anyone as if they're less than human, less than a brother or sister, no matter what they have done, is to contravene the very laws of humanity. See, that's the problem with fear. It dehumanizes people. When I have a fear of, of you or someone, I, I only see you through the lens of that fear. I only see you through the, the potential threat that you are to me. I only see the harm that you could do to me. We have this expression that we use of you know, making a mountain out of a molehill. Well, we do the same with people. We turn a person that may not be a threat to you at all into a monster. And what do you do with monsters? You run from them or you destroy them. You hide from them or you attack them. You, you, you carry anxiety about monsters. And sometimes we create monsters out of people, just just people. In today's scripture reading, we are in Acts 10, and we hear about a very good man named Cornelius, respected in his community. It said in Acts 10 too, he and his whole household were pious, Gentile, God worshipers. He gave generously to those in need among the Jewish people and prayed to God constantly. It's a good Man, a generous man, a, a, a person who contributes to society. If, 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 if somebody like Cornelius and his family came to First Church, we would be so happy to meet them. Pastors like Emily and I might immediately start to think about ways that that Cornelius, he could be a future leader of First Church. This is the kind of guy you want to have around, unless you're Jewish. You see, Cornelius, as good a man as he was, had some baggage. First of all, he was a Roman centurion. In this period of his history, the, the Romans had invaded the, the lands of the Jews and, and all of the lands of the known world. They had come in, they had occupied, they had ruled it under the rule of Caesar. And to keep the peace, they often resorted to oppressive, violent means. Now, now, Cornelius may not have been a, a violent man, but to be a centurion, he had to have known battles. He was part of the invading force. Well, if you were one of the locals, if you were a Jew, well, you hated those Roman occupiers. You would see him only through that lens. You are one of Caesar's soldiers. A step further. It said that he was 
a Gentile. To be a Gentile means that you're not a Jew. And, and Gentiles were considered by Jews to be unclean. And for Jews, that was a big deal. To be with a Gentile made you unclean, which meant you were not right in your relationship with God. It was, it was like an infection, being with an unclean person. Well, you, you wouldn't associate with them, and you certainly wouldn't enter their home. And so this Cornelius, as good as he was, was a Gentile, a Roman soldier. There were reasons that a Jew might fear him. Well, God saw the truth of who Cornelius was. An angel appeared to Cornelius saying in verse 4 through 6, Your prayers and your compassionate acts are like a memorial offering to God. Send messengers at once and summon a certain Simon, the one known as Peter. You, you know Peter. Peter was one of the first disciples chosen by Jesus, later become, becoming a, a leader in the early Christian church. Well, the next day, the, the story shifts, and Peter is on a rooftop, and he's praying, and it's about lunchtime. And it says in Acts 10.10, Peter became hungry and wanted to eat. While others were preparing the meal, he had a, a visionary experience. He saw heaven opened and something like a large linen sheet being lowered to the earth by its four corners. Inside the sheet were all kinds of four-legged animals, reptiles, and wild birds. A voice told him, get up, Peter, kill, and eat. Now, Jews, historically, even to this day, have very strict dietary rules. There are foods that are considered to be clean, that they can eat, and there are foods that are considered to be off-limits, unclean, that if you eat them, you, as a Jew, become unclean. Well, all of the animals that Peter saw in this sheet that was lowered from heaven, of all places, were unclean foods. And this voice from heaven says, eat up, Peter. Pick something there and, and kill it and eat it. An, an unclean food. Well if, well, if associating with an unclean person could make you unclean, eating an unclean food could make you unclean. And so Peter's first reaction, even though it's a vision from heaven, even though it's a voice from heaven, his first reaction is, absolutely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke a second time. Never consider unclean what God has made pure. This happened three times. Then the object was suddenly pulled back into heaven. Peter was bewildered about the meaning of the vision. Of course he was bewildered. He had been raised to believe there are certain people and there are certain foods and there are certain behaviors that make you unclean. And to a Jew, being unclean with God is a very, very big deal. But three times from heaven, God says, don't consider anything that I've made clean unclean. The rules are different. This changes everything. The next time Peter takes his family out to dinner, he can order steak and lobster, an unclean food. Not only that, he can invite a Gentile to dinner with him. This changes 
everything. This voice from heaven tells him, what you thought was unclean isn't unclean anymore. Well, just as as Peter is, is trying to deal with this whole new spiritual reality, there comes a knock at the door. In verse 17, it says, Just then, messengers sent by Cornelius discovered the whereabouts of Simon's house and arrived at the gate. Calling out, they inquired whether the Simon known as Peter was a guest there. While Peter was brooding over the vision, the spirit interrupted him. Look, three people are looking for you. Go downstairs. Don't ask questions. Just go with them because I have sent them. Quickly, Peter is is putting two and two together. He had been hungry. He thought all of this was really about food, what what he was allowed to have for lunch that day. But, But he's starting to realize that this vision from God really isn't about food at all. Just as these previously unclean foods are now clean, now Gentiles, in God's eyes, could be considered clean, too. Well, one thing leads to another. Peter goes and greets the the men at the gate. They convince him to go to meet Cornelius. Peter enters the home of Cornelius. They get to know each other. He hears the story. And that same day, Peter baptizes Cornelius and his entire household. Cornelius and his household are among the first Gentiles to be baptized into the new Christian faith. Now, now prior to this vision of these animals, unclean animals being lowered from heaven, but before hearing this voice from heaven, Peter never would have entered into the home of Cornelius. He never would have interacted with Cornelius. Prior, prior to this encounter, Peter would have thought it was the wise prudent, even spiritual thing to do to avoid someone like Cornelius. His, uh, his prejudices, his biases, his fears would have kept him from seeing that Cornelius was a good, pious, godly man. He would have been afraid of him. How often does that happen? that our preconceived ideas about a person causes us to be afraid of them. Fear of the stranger, fear of difference, fear of what Peter would have considered contamination, fear of losing God's approval. Better play it safe. Better just keep your distance. Better not take the risk. Better to stay inside your bubble and only associate with those people that you can trust and count on that are like you. I should probably mention here that uh, unless you are ethnically Jewish, you and I are in the same camp as Cornelius. We are Gentiles, non-Jews. Just as Peter would have kept Cornelius, at more than an arm's length, he would have done the same with all of us. You and I, before Christ, would have been considered unclean too. So let me ask you a question. Who do you consider unclean? That's probably not familiar language, but 
as I've explained it in this interaction between Cornelius and Peter, who do you consider unclean? Who do you tend to avoid? Who do you tend to exclude? Who do you tend to to lock out of your life? Who do you tend to, uh, at some level, be afraid of? And and maybe it's, it's not fear. I mean, maybe that's not the right word. Maybe it's just, I don't trust them. Maybe it's suspicion. Maybe it's just discomfort. When I was a, a campus minister, there was a, a, a term that, that some of my female students would use about guys that were sometimes a little socially awkward. They say they're creepy. There came a point where I just banned the word creepy in my campus minister because it's an unkind thing to say about a guy who just doesn't have very good social skills. How many people do we consider creepy just because they're a little different? How many people are we pushing away that are potentially our brother or sister in Christ? So so here's the point of today's message. Jesus said, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus was pretty clear, our neighbor is not the folks that are living in our little bubble. He included in that category of connecting with others Loving people who are different than us. Loving people maybe that even make us uncomfortable. Loving people that, that you know, if we're going to play it safe, we would just stay away from. Jesus said, love your enemy, right? That includes the people we have prejudices against. That, in, that, that includes the people we hold grudges against. That, that includes the people that have actually maybe even done us harm, but especially includes those people that we have made assumptions about that probably just really aren't true, but our lizard brain is on overdrive. Friends, as as followers of Jesus, our job is to be bridge builders, not wall builders. Fear builds walls. Love builds bridges connecting us to people that we're not automatically connected to. It it takes effort. It takes faithfulness. It takes overcoming our fears. It takes courage. So how do we do that? Remember I talked earlier about our lizard brain that's always the first to react. It's the the one that has that fight or flee uh, activity or, or reaction. Remember, we have this this big part of our brain up in front. It's called the the prefrontal cortex. And and this is where we get to think. Not just react, we get to think and assess our fears and and look at a person and see there's more to them than just what maybe caused us to react in fear. I I can't help but wonder, when, when Jesus said, love the Lord your God with your mind, if he meant more than just loving God with our lizard brain, if he meant engaging the whole mind so that we can think reasonably and rationally about lots of things, including people, 
And I can't help but wonder if part of how we connect with our neighbor, how we love our neighbor, is to look past the reaction of fear, to not let all of our relationships be driven by fear, and to possibly open our heart to people who are different than us. That means that sometimes we have to have the courage to connect with people that we wouldn't connect with otherwise. I think that's what it means to be like Jesus. Each week we've been suggesting a, a different ability that you might try as we have this series of connectability and how we connect with people. This week's connection, this week's ability is a suggestion of reading an article by Ibram X. Kendi called Who Gets to be Afraid in America? It's there in your sermon notes that came in your email on Friday. We'll also post it in the, in the comments and on Facebook. I hope you'll take a look at that article. Read it, discuss it, think about it. Who are you afraid of and why? And is it time to overcome those fears with courage and love? Let's pray. Oh God, as as Gentiles, as non-Jews, we are thankful for your love and your grace and acceptance. Once we were considered to be unclean, but now you have named us clean, and we thank you for that. And we thank you, Lord, that you give us courage sometimes to overcome our unreasonable fears, especially our fear of people. Lord, help us to look back, look past those things that cause us to be anxious, suspicious, and not to be reckless, but to see in each person their humanity, to see what you see, to see the possibility of love and friendship, to see each person as a potential brother or sister in Christ. Help us overcome our fears. You tell us throughout Scripture over and over, fear not. Help us not to be fearful people. Help us to be courageous, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.